Halls, it's uh, it's been a difficult couple weeks. And if you listen back to our episode 142, uh, we had uh, Julie Rohr, who is an incredible person um, in Edmonton, a staple in Edmonton and uh, really across Canada. Yeah, and uh, it was just last week that Julie went into hospice. If you at all recall the episode, um, she was talking about her battle with cancer. And mm. so it was incredible just seeing over the past week, the community coming together, the Twitterverse, as they said, just um, supporting Julie and her family and her friends with shout outs from, you know, actors like Ryan Reynolds and, and more, yeah. just, you know, wishing her all the best and sending her all the love. And um, it's been a very rough week for, for the family. So it's what we wanted to do. We wanted to do a, uh, a rewind, a rerun of her episode, episode 142. So uh, if, if you didn't have a chance to hear it, you get to see and hear just what uh, an amazing lady she is, she was, and the impact that she had on so many. The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. Episode number 142. And we have a special ISG. Yeah, you know me. Yeah, that's right. It's an in-studio guest. Yes. For those following along at home, for those who did not know, uh, as the story is incredible, the person is amazing, and we are going to dive into all of that today. Yeah, I'm so excited because I've known this wonderful woman for many a years, but never had a chance to really hear the uh, behind the scenes, the real life story. So let's dive into it for today. Julie Rohr, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you. <laughs> well, we like to ask the skill testing question because we never know where it's going to go. Julie, who are you and where'd you come from? Who am I and where did I come from? That's a pretty broad question. Okay, my name is Julie Rohr. I am a mom of two. I am a wife. I am a writer and I live in Edmonton. I Where did I come from? Mainly Edmonton. I mean, I moved around a lot when I was a kid. Uh, my dad was a pastor and we moved to different churches when I was little. But Edmonton's basically been home since I was about 13, so all my formative kind of years. Does your dad still pasteurize? Pasteurize the milk and the people, yes. yes. Nice. He's, uh <laughs> Well, he yeah, he's uh, involved with Heritage Valley Church, and um, he does pastor there right now, yeah. We usually talk about this when we get somebody who's a PK, a mm-hmm. uh, pastor's kid. Was there pressures on you growing up being a, a pastor's kid? Oh, yeah. I think every pastor's kid would say kind of the same thing. We... Not that I knew they were pressures at the time. It didn't feel like pressures. But yeah, looking back on it, sure, we had certain standards that we had to live up to from our parents. But I think Mm -hmm. everybody has those standards, no matter what industry or whatever job their parents have. You know, there's all kinds of moral rules and societal rules that we have to live up to. But yeah, sure, like skirts only so short, not very much makeup, (laughs) didn't dance, didn't play cards. Like, yeah, you know, the the standard PK stuff back then. It's funny because it often will feel like it's the PKs that tend to rebel a little bit more. But I think it's just because they're a bit more in the spotlight. Were you one that maybe uh, rebelled just a touch? You know what? I didn't. I was a good girl. I I was a good PK. I was a good (laughs) youth group member. I was a good youth group leader. I was a good Sunday school teacher. I went to Bible college. I would say I followed all the rules. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. I mean, I did everything as right as I thought I could, kind Mm -hmm. of. So then as you were growing up, was it you, I mean, you went to Bible college, you had said, uh, did you want to become a pastor? Or what was it once graduation happened, if we would have said, Julie, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, coming out of high school, I was very much living the 
you know, the life that I thought I was supposed to be living, which was um, doing the will of God. And I thought Bible college was the will of God for my life, as a lot of my friends kind of did back then. And if you were to ask me what I really wanted to do, I probably always wanted to be a writer. But I I loved music as well. So I took music in Bible college. Um, I thought maybe I would be able to be part of a worship group at a church somewhere. But sort of uh, after two years of Bible college, I did transfer over to Grant McEwen to do the journalism program. So I I did that program for two years as well after my Bible college experience. And what was kind of the goal after school? Was it to be a journalist or? Yeah, I wanted to go into, you know, newspaper writing. And I did for a bit of time. I worked for a newspaper in Sherwood Park. And it was a great experience. I, I love the experience of hearing somebody's story mm. and putting it into words. It's mm. one of my favorite things. And the newspaper job allowed me to experience a lot of really interesting moments. I also love photography, capturing kind of those candid moments. So I did get to hear a lot of amazing stories in my time there and tell a lot of amazing stories. The job didn't last too long from my end because I got really frustrated with what my life looked like. The hours were crazy. The pay was really bad. I was just really stressed out. So I, I moved into property management after that. I worked for a property management office because the hours were stable, the pay was better, and my life was kind of really chaotic at that time, and I was looking for some kind of stability and yeah. normalcy. Chaotic how? I just had a lot going on socially. I was in a marriage that was difficult. I won't talk too much about that because I still have a lot of love and respect for my son's dad, but I did go through divorce after seven years of marriage and all of that was a really hard period of time for me. As a, you know, someone who grew up in the church to kind of get to that point of, ah, this marriage is just not working. How was that for you to make that transition from being in a marriage to then out of a marriage? Yeah, that was, I would say, the hardest point in my life. I Again, I thought I was doing everything right. I thought I was in the will of God. And when you're raised in, you know, this belief system, there are things that you maybe don't contemplate mm. until you're there. I yeah. mean, I had a really binary view of God, black and white. Things were right. Things were wrong. This was good. This was bad. I didn't know how to deal with the gray areas. I didn't know how to deal with a life that was falling apart or not looking like I thought it should look. So yeah, that was definitely a very low point for me. I uh, had a little guy, two years old at the time, and I just knew the marriage wasn't going to make it. It was a very traumatic season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you go through that now, and so then I guess the focus is on being mom. How did that then change your perspective of married to, you know what, I'm not, but now I'm mom and I have to look after this little guy. Yeah, it was um, terrifying. I think any single parent will tell you if you're going through a relationship breakup if and you have kids, your kids are your biggest concern. And I just remember my little guy, I mean, two years old, but he could sense that there was mm-hmm. stuff going on. And one night I was putting him to bed and he put his little cheek, like hands on my cheeks, his little baby mm-hmm. hands. And he said, Mama, are you okay? That was a pivotal moment for me because obviously he could see I was not okay. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was not okay. I was trying to, you know, act okay for him. And then I thought, you know, I need to figure out how to be the best mom I can be to this kid. And yeah, those years of single mom and it were pretty um, tough, but I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my child and I learned a lot about God. I think Mm. in that time, um, I went through a lot of faith transition. I had to cope with this idea of a benevolent, loving God allowing my life to look the way it looked right then, allowing me to walk this path that was painful and hard. And 
allowing, you know, my friends around me were going through traumas, you know, losing a baby or losing a loved one. Like you watch your views about God sort of crumble before your eyes because you think, oh, well, if I have God in my life, everything's going to be great. Yeah. And, and then when it's not, you have to question what you believe and question who you think God really is. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I grew up, you know, going to the Christian school and, you know, kind of having, uh, I mean, my family was a nuclear one. I had a blended family, but it's so interesting because you go through kind of the, like you said, the black and white growing up. This is right. This is wrong. And then you kind of base your initial faith on that. And then suddenly everything that you know is completely different. It can be really hard to to wrestle with those ideas. Absolutely. Um, And I think there's a lot of people who go through life not having to wrestle that because their life goes the way that it's, you know, planned to go. And then they don't have to face those kind of tough faith questions until maybe they're much older. But for those of us who face life traumas when we're in our 20s or our 30s, I mean, there really is a shaking that goes on, a shaking of your core belief system. And uh, yeah, it leads you to a lot of a lot more questions than answers, let's say. Mm-hmm. I'm no mathematician, but I put two and two together because you said mom of two and wife. So then I would assume then you eventually got remarried. Mm-hmm. I did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I have been married just five years now to uh, my beautiful husband, David, and he had a son as well from a previous marriage. And so we, the, between the two of us, we've got our two boys, a uh, blended family. And yeah, I'm really grateful. I I just can't even say how grateful I am to have met David and have him come alongside me in what would turn out to be one of the hardest, darkest times of my life. Uh, We didn't know it at the time, obviously, when we got married, but we were about to embark on a serious health journey, and uh, I'm so grateful to have him by my side. Mm -hmm. Before we get into that side of things, uh, how was it then you being single mom, then all of a sudden you're in the dating game, you're, you know, (laughs) looking to perhaps get married. Did, were you turned off of marriage altogether? Or did you think, hey, maybe it was an oops the first time, but we could do this again. And you know, the second time's a charm. Yeah, Yeah, I, uh, I was not interested in another relationship. There was no way I wanted to repeat the heartache that I had just been through. I was very confused. I had not landed on my feet. And when David came into my life and eventually expressed an interest in going for coffee, I mean, I thought he was a nice guy, but I was like, no, thank you. I am not. I don't drink coffee. Well, I actually don't drink coffee, which was funny. That ended up being funny. We both don't drink coffee. We realized on our first date when we went for coffee that we both only drink tea. But anyways, no, I was not looking. I was not interested. And I I really kind of held that off for a while. And and said, thank you, but I don't really know how I feel about Mm. this right now. And, you know, eventually I thought, what's the worst that could happen? Let this guy go for coffee with me. No, no big deal. And Mm. turned out we had a lot in common, a lot, a lot to talk about. And I was really grateful I didn't actually have to go out on the dating scene because from my friends who are in the dating scene right now, I'm like not interested in that life that's hard and complicated. And I just feel grateful that it happened the way it did happen. Mm -hmm. When did you know? After a series of, you know, conversations and dinners and hanging out, uh, you know, it became fairly obvious we were very compatible personalities. And the rest is history. Five yeah. years later, yeah. here yeah. we are. Five years later, yeah. here we are. Now, you, you had said going through your, uh, your first marriage and that was one of the hardest times of your life. And then you alluded to now all of a sudden you get married again. And now you're going through another completely difficult transition in your life. Mm-hmm. From what I had heard, it was around the age of 33. Yeah, that's right. So that summer, 
Um, so I was married in January. David and I were married in January of 2015. And that summer I was experiencing pain uh, sort of in my right abdomen area. And I am the kind of person who loves the heck out of life. I love everything about summer in Edmonton, all the festivals, all the friends, all the go to the lake. Like I just love summer and I wasn't about to go spend time in a doctor's office. No, thank you. I just thought this was going to pass eventually by about Thanksgiving. It was Thanksgiving weekend. You know, my sister, who's a nurse, had been saying, you should probably go get that checked out. It's not going away. You know, it could be your appendix about to explode. So Thanksgiving weekend, I was in complete agony. I was in so much pain, I couldn't even barely move. So we went to the emergency room and they did some scans and uh, ended up basically telling me, oh, well, um, the pain that you're experiencing looks like it's coming from um, a cyst on your right ovary, which is not uncommon. Lots of women get that. It's very painful, but it's likely to be nothing. It's likely to be benign. But while we were scanning, we scanned up a little bit near your kidney and we noticed a growth that doesn't look like it should be there. So we're going to have to do some further testing. And that was the start of what I'm living now. Um, It took a couple of weeks. They gave me, you know, go to the cross cancer, get a biopsy, this mass was about as big as a mandarin orange, kind of near my right kidney, growing off of my vena cava, which is the big vein that takes blood from your heart down to your lower extremities. Yeah, I will never forget the day I was in my doctor's office to get the results from the scan. And I like I am a complete optimist. I went through that scanning process like, no big deal. Everything's going to be fine. It has to be benign. There's no way that I have anything terrible growing inside my body. Mm-hmm. But my doctor uh, brought in a piece of paper into her office and she was in tears. And I remember thinking, well, that's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, like, no kidding. Nobody wants to have your doctor come <laughs> into the office with tears. And she said, I'm really sorry. I, I don't like I don't very often have to give this diagnosis, but you, you've been diagnosed with leiomyosarcoma, which is um, a rare and incurable cancer. And I just kind of sat there in complete shock. I mean, I had been prepared for the idea that this was something we would need to manage, but I had not considered the thought of a cancer that was incurable. That just, it wasn't on my radar. What cancer is this then? So leiomyosarcoma, yeah, it's a big (laughs) word. It's a very rare diagnosis. So about one in one million people will have the diagnosis that I was given. It's uh, sarcoma is a cancer of the soft tissues or muscle. It's often incurable because it's very rare. There's very little research money put towards curing it, Mm -hmm. uh, as most rare cancers We're in the same kind of boat. Uh, There's not very many of us, so drug companies and doctors don't spend their primary amount of time, you know, researching cures for us. I want to ask the questions, but I also want to be very tactful in asking these questions. So please... Oh, ask all the questions. I am an open book. You have this pain. Did you regret waiting as long as you did? You know what? I don't regret waiting. I Still, they consider that they found this very early. At the time they found it, it was still quite small and operable. And they were all very surprised. There, There's no correlation between the pain I was having and the cancer I was diagnosed with. Like really, most people who have the diagnosis I have have to wait until the tumor is big enough to be causing physical pain on its own in your body. So by that time, it's often spread throughout your body or it's often huge and inoperable. So I still consider myself very fortunate that they found it when they did. 
could they not remove it? They did remove that first tumor, and um, but they told me from the get-go, you know, your best chances are surgery, so we're going to do as much surgery as we can, but this t- cancer is the type that will continue to return and continue to return. A majority of people who get diagnosed, like the average survival of a patient diagnosed with LMS is about 12 to 18 months. I was given basically, you know, upon my first operation, they were they said you'd, you'd be lucky to live five years. You know, 20% of people live five years with, you know, the stage that it was found at and whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was pretty serious from the start. I was spinning uh, the first few weeks, you know, when you're given news like that. And you've got, I mean, Max was six yeah. and Jacob was nine. It was um, almost incomprehensible that I would be facing this um, type of situation. Yeah, no, for sure. And as someone who is like an optimist, how did that shape now your your view on the world? That's a good question. I, I, people would still peg me as an optimist to this day, you know, four years later. I, um, I was shaken, uh, deeply shaken, and it definitely threw me off my foundation, I might say. Uh, but I never did give up that optimistic outlook, even after the first few weeks of um, absolute despair and Googling everything, which I don't recommend. Don't yeah. Google <laughs> that stuff. It's terrible. It's the worst idea. The yeah. stats are so bad. You're not going to find good stories on it. But, mm-hmm. you know, the stats are old, too. And stats are just stats. They they don't apply to an individual person. They apply to the collective. And the collective can look very different. And um, I'm young, you know, my body is physically very strong. So I've, I've been very optimistic from the start that, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do my best to survive as long as I can and trust, um, trust the process, trust what's going on. So as a mom who a formerly single mom, it's you, it's your son, you're trying to be as strong as you can for him. You find out this diagnosis. It's one thing to have a conversation with your husband, who's an adult. How do you have that conversation with your kids? I think there's no right way to have a conversation like that with your kids. But I'm a very open person. I'm very transparent with my kids and my husband. And I didn't want to be hiding information from them. But I also didn't want to overwhelm them with information they wouldn't understand or that would be very scary to them. So all along, we've been very, uh, we haven't hidden information, but we haven't been giving information that they don't need at the time, if that makes sense. So I'll answer Max's questions when he has them, but I won't proactively go out of my way to say, hey, the cancer is metastasized to my liver now, so I'm going to start a new chemo. I just basically say, you know what, bud, I'm going to have to start a new medicine. They're not totally sure what's going on. And, you know, we're going to try and be proactive. And so we keep it sort of to a minimum. But I do answer his questions when I'm asked. That very first conversation was the hardest because it was the first time I ever had to even contemplate or talk to him about Mm. these issues. And so I took him one day after school and we sat out in the woods together and he knew there had been something growing in mom's tummy that was not supposed to be there and that I might need surgery for it. And so I said, you know, that thing that they're looking at in mom's tummy, well, that is cancer. And so we're going to have to, we're going to have to work as a family to deal with this. And, you know, he was upset, but I didn't look sick at the time. It didn't hit him as hard as when I, you know, lost all my hair for the first time or was, you know, throwing up from chemo for the first time. Those were when it really started to hit home for for the kids. Mm -hmm. Now, as a mom of two and you have your husband and you're like walking this journey together, how important is it for you to have that close family unit walking with you through this journey? Family and community has just lifted me through this whole thing. I mean, 
the people that I grew up knowing through church, I mean, the church community here in Edmonton is pretty tight knit. It's big. There's a lot of churches here, but it's when you really get into it, it's small. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, you get talking and this person knows that person and you go into this church. Oh, hey, I know that person. And so, you know, word spread through the prayer chains and Mm -hmm. through the the grandmas who were praying for me. And I had, oh my gosh, I, I, I gave up counting. There was, you know... I'm not exaggerating when I say there were thousands of people in Edmonton and Canada praying for my safe surgeries, praying for my healing, praying for, you know, my anxiety that comes with all of this, praying for my kids and neighbors that would drop by with casseroles that would drop by, you know, neighbor who knew where my house key was, who would sneak in and put fresh fruit in the fridge or put washcloths that were soaked in lavender in the fridge for me. Like this, this kind of stuff, it's a little gesture, but it goes so far in my world and I have this story from when I was at the Grey Nuns when the chaplain I was in the Grey Nuns ICU right after my first surgery and the chaplain stopped at the door of my room and he kind of just put his hands up and he goes wait a second I'm here to pray for you but what's going on in this room like (laughs) I feel the I feel such a heavy sense of, of something in here like do you have people praying for you and I said oh sir you would not believe mm-hmm. I do he said I can feel that like can you actually pray for me <laughs> like so here I am he comes to the side of my bed and I'm praying for the hospital chaplain as he does his job and you know there's been these moments where I just I know that I have peace in my heart and my life because of the prayers of all these people in, in the Edmonton region. So. You get this diagnosis. Has it changed you and your perspective on life or has it changed just who you are as a person? Absolutely. I I wouldn't hesitate to say that I like myself more as a person now than I did five years ago. I look at the world differently. My priorities are not terribly different, but definitely different in terms of where I spend my time, where I spend my money, how I think about things. Because when you're told you only have a certain amount of time left, the way that you prioritize your time definitely changes. So yeah, I've, I've definitely taken a hard look at my philosophies, my theology about God. Um, what does a benevolent God look like when you're diagnosed with an incurable cancer? What does a loving... God theology look like when your friend loses a baby, when your grandmother is diagnosed with something, when your child is diagnosed with something, when your kid is being bullied at school? What does what does your faith look like in real life when you're faced with the, the hardest times? And so I had to I had to re-look at my answers to those questions and really kind of struggle through that for, for a while. And um, it's been so beneficial to my life. I feel like I'm in the best place I've ever been as a human being now at this point. Yeah. We ask those why me moments, the hills and the valleys of life. Do you ask that question and do you have anger to God because you were given this incurable cancer? I think I went through my angry with God stage more during the divorce Um that was when I was asking the why me and why does this have to happen now and what am I going to do now and I felt really sorry for myself that kind of happened prior to my diagnosis so because I kind of went through those years and dealt with a lot of big wrestling of those the why me questions when I was diagnosed with an incurable cancer I think I did ask why like I did have that deep why but it was less of a self-pitying why and more of a what do I do with this diagnosis question? And so, 
you know, in the very beginning, I, I was saying, well, was it something I did? Hmm. Like, I think a lot of people who are sick or who have gone through life traumas because of theology that we've grown up with ask, you know, was it something I did? Was it something I said? Am I being punished for a sin I committed? Am I being, is this cancer a punishment? Like, that's a very hard and real thing that people in my situation often look at when, sure. you're, when mm-hmm. you grow up in the church. And um, I did have to wrestle through those questions for sure. But there are why me moments that I have when I'm in such a beautiful place because of my diagnosis. You know, like I have the opportunity to, to pour into people's lives and I say, you know, the why me is almost answered in that moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, why me? Why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to go through this pain? And then you get to this beautiful moment and you think, oh, why do I get to live this beautiful existence? This is all interrelated. The The traumas that we go through deepen our characters and deepen our perspectives on life in a, in a way that allows us to speak into other people's lives that we couldn't have before, if mm-hmm. that makes any sense. Yeah. How has this season, because you're an artist, how has that changed the way you approach art with mm-hmm. writing and with whatever that is for you in your life. Mm -hmm. I've been very vulnerable and transparent in my writing about what I'm going through. And I've had lots and lots of opportunities arise because of that in terms of the, you know, public speaking. And I'm writing a book right now and I have some, you know, leads on creating course content for resilience, building resilience and pouring into people's lives that way. Um, it's definitely changed my art form. I'm more aware and cognizant of other people's pain now than I was before. So my art reflects that. My writing reflects that. My photography reflects that. Um, I have more empathy and more compassion, I think, now than I ever did before in my life. So that informs everything, all my choices, political, theological, you know, social Uh, what I do with my finances, all of that is touched by what I've gone through. I have a two-part question. I think about there was that country song from Tim McGraw, Live Like You're Dying. Do you count down the days? Do you count up the days? Where is your mindset when it comes to, you were given this diagnosis years ago, but yet every day you've been able to live this incredible life? Yeah. Um, I definitely wake up every day with a sense of awe that I'm still here. As optimistic as I am, I'm also a realist at this point. I understand I've outlived a lot of people in my situation. And I do look at as at, at every day and every year with my kids and every extra anniversary with my husband as an absolute gift. And I think that awareness, I mean, back in October, I lost a dear friend who was hit by a car. That you know, she she wasn't planning for that. A lot of people don't get the opportunity to face their mortality before they die. And in my situation, I, I get the chance to think about that on a regular basis. And, mm-hmm. you know, as, as hard as that is, it is a blessing in a way to be able to have the time to think about what I want my last days to look like, what I want my last messages to my family to look like, what I want my life message to look like. So absolutely, every day is a gift in my world. And I do have these moments where I just plead with God. I plead Mm. and say, you know, please, like, get me through till my son's 18. Get me through till my sons have their babies and I can hold my grandbabies. Of course I want that. Of course I read the stories in the Bible where, you know, the person is is saying, God, give me another 10 years. Like, just give me 10 more years. And and God does. Like, so, so if that happened in scripture, what does that inform? How does that inform my faith now? How does that look for my own asks, my own prayer? 
prayers and how what do I believe my prayers can and will accomplish there's lots of questions about that in terms of faith but I definitely look at every day as a gift I take nothing for granted I I think a lot about what I want my kids to remember from my life so yeah it's interesting that you bring that up though because that was kind of my the next part of that part two was they've said that it's incurable but yet in your mind, do you have it like, maybe I can be that one person who's going to beat it. I could be that one person, that one in a million who, I don't care what the doctors and the nurses say, because you could be that person. Does that go on in your head? A hundred percent from the beginning. I mean, when they told me nobody survives this, you know, it's incurable. This is your timeline. I immediately thought, I mean, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, people. I, I have mm. seen things. I have seen stuff happened that wasn't supposed to happen in terms of people outliving their predictions, outliving their diagnosis. I, you know, I believe that um, the way I think about the disease I live with affects the disease within my body and the way I approach every day affects the disease within my body. I understand the workings of the nervous system. You know, if I'm living in fear and dread every day, my nervous system is pumping out hormones that are making me sicker. Hmm. So so why am I going to sit there in fear and self-pity? Because that's not helping me live longer. So hmm. I've, I've studied a lot of scientific research in terms of brain-body connection. In terms of prayer, like there's a lot of scientific research on prayer. And even, you know, things like placebo effect. Like why does somebody who has a headache in a hospital study, who's given a sugar pill, a tic-tac, why does their headache go away? And why could that not work for your whole body if you just believe, you know, there's a lot of um, scientific studies that look at this kind of effect. And sure, I know that that could be crazy. I know my doctors look at that and just kind of scoff and say, well, that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, but why wouldn't I study that? Why wouldn't I look into the power of the mind, the power of a spiritual connection, the power of a community connection that could actually make me live longer? So yeah, from the start, I was one of those people who said, sure, you can tell me this is incurable. I don't think incurable is a thing. I, I don't actually believe the word incurable. I think there are new scientific discoveries being made around every corner. And sure, I could die from this cancer. Most people are saying I will die from this cancer. And that whether or not I die from this cancer is irrelevant. The point is, I am living every day with the most intention that I can and with belief that I can survive. And mm -hmm. that puts positive energy into every day that I live. So I'm not going to let a diagnosis dictate my spirit. I'm not going to let a diagnosis dictate what I do you know, in my everyday. Um, and I'm not going to give up because someone tells me something's incurable. Thinking about kind of that black and white and, you know, the faith of when you were growing up compared to your faith now, what is one of the biggest changes that you've seen? I used to know all the answers. I used to know every answer to every theological question in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, in my early 20s, I just, you know, had it all figured out. There's formulas. If you do this, God works this way. If you, yeah. you know, and if you follow this path, this is, you know, and as, as I lived, my real life didn't look like my beliefs told me it would or should. And um, so I think one of the biggest changes is not needing to have all the answers. I'm in a place now where I don't even care if I have all the right answers. I don't, I, that's, that's irrelevant. What, what I need to have is a strong connection with my faith. 
I need to have a strong connection with the people of faith around me. And whether or not I have the theological answers as to why I was diagnosed with cancer um, doesn't matter. What, what matters is how I look at God and is God a loving God and can I trust that my life is going to mean something here on this earth and that, you know, I have been born with, with purpose and with meaning and what does that look like? You know, so not having specific theological answers as to what the afterlife looks like or how many angels dance on the head of a pin or <laughs> this and that kind of question that have yeah. been debated by philosophers and theologians for thousands of years. I don't need those answers. What I need is real faith lived out in my real life. And what does that look like for me? It looks like love. And real faith to me is my pastor dropping off muffins on a Sunday morning that I can't attend church because I'm too sick. And real faith for me looks like my neighbor coming over to cry with me when I get a bad phone call or when my kids are struggling or, you know, like there's God right there. I'm seeing God in action all around me every day. And um, so, yeah, my relationship with God has changed. My relationship with faith has changed. But um, my core beliefs in God is love. um, And this is what God's love looks like lived out in my life. That's become clearer than ever. Hmm. We talk about your writing, we talk about that you're writing a book, we talk about your speaking engagements and that. What legacy do you want to leave? Is a question I think about a lot. And I think when it really comes down to it, I mean, it it can sound cliche, but I just want to leave a legacy of love that I loved as much as I could and that I was loved. And that when I'm gone, I mean, all of us only have so much time on earth. Mm -hmm. And when we're all gone, you know, when you're gone, when I'm gone, what will people remember about me? I hope that people remember the love of God and the love of my heart being poured out towards them in practical ways in the same way that they've poured out to me and and loving one another. That community means reaching across barriers that might look scary, means reaching out to hold the hand of somebody that might be left by the wayside. What What does Christ's love really look like in 2020? I want that to be my legacy that um, that I loved. Mm-hmm. It's funny because we were kind of non-preparing but preparing for today. I'm like, Julie, what do I think when I first think of Julie? It would be that you are someone who loves boldly. And so that's something that even in our limited interactions is something that uh, you are already doing for people. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Holly. She spits in the face of incurable. <laughs> Appreciate your honesty and uh, your transparency. At Julie, R-O-H-R, Yeg, or Y-E-G on all socials. And thank you very much for taking some time. Thanks, everyone. Nice to be here. Have a great day. Wow, I can't believe she was one of our last in-studio guests. Mm. Um, and I just feel so honored to have known her and yeah. to have had her in studio and just to share that time with her because she was just a huge inspiration and has left an incredible legacy. Yeah. You're going through so much garbage and does it with a smile on her face. And yeah. it might not necessarily be the easiest thing to do, but she is just uh, for the half hour, 45 minutes, hour that we got to spend with her, it, it was impactful. Yeah. And then to see the positive messages that uh, people have uh, left and, you know, the Twitter and that, that she has left for us to read is uh, quite uh, amazing. So we appreciate uh, her and the time spent that we had with her. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in closing, I just want to say that to her friends and to her family, those who are close to her, we are definitely keeping you in our prayers. And I don't say that lightly. I know it's mm. such a huge, huge loss. 
Um, and so we are praying for you. And I just want to thank Julie for taking time to to be with us and to share her story because it is definitely what has encouraged me. It's been one of my favorites. And um, I'm just feeling so honored and blessed that we, we had that time. Yeah.